Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. Whether this is your first time you've listened to our program or you have been with us many times before, we are delighted that you have joined us. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, presence of Jesus Christ among us. He is alive and well. It's my privilege today to introduce Kimberly Hahn. Married to Scott Hahn, Kimberly has been a full-time stay-at-home mom since the arrival of the firstborn of their five children. She homeschooled their children and co-authored a book on the subject. While Kimberly also enjoys a speaking ministry with Scott, family commitments take top priority with her. She earned an M.A. in theology from Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary. A Presbyterian with strong anti-Catholic convictions, her road to Catholicism led her through difficult struggles and trials before entering the Catholic Church in 1990, four years after her husband's conversion. You won't want to miss this extraordinary testimony. It will inspire you. Again, my privilege to introduce Kimberly Hahn. It is a great honor and privilege to be able to be here with you. I don't know how many of you were raised Protestants. Mary is hard to understand, and one of the biggest barriers in our misunderstanding of Mary is a, is a major barrier for Protestants to be able to appreciate the fullness of the faith that we have in the Catholic Church. And so I'm going to share my testimony, but I'm going to focus a great deal on Mary. In fact, Scott renamed my talk, Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary, <laughs> along those lines. We, we get different pictures of what Catholics think about Mary. Uh, I think one we, we see a lot now on television with the football games. Like uh, a football player at the end of the game is interviewed and what's the first thing he says? Hi mom! You know, you don't even know that most of them have fathers. It's just, you know, the important person to communicate with is their mother, you know. Um, another sort of picture of how we sometimes uh, misunderstand Mary uh, and miscommunicate it, it can be summarized by this little story, which may have actually happened, I don't know. American woman walked into one of the little churches in Rome, and there are just all kinds of churches in Rome, Catholic churches, and a, a painter was up near the ceiling working, and he thought he'd have some fun. So as the woman's kneeling in prayer, he very quietly says, this is Jesus, and there's no response. So he, she must not have heard me, I'm going to try it again. So a little louder, he says, this is Jesus, no response. So louder still. This is Jesus, to which the woman looked up and said, Be quiet, I'm talking to your mother. (laughs) 
there were times that when I talked to my Catholic friends and I wanted to talk about Jesus, I got the impression I was talking about the wrong person. And that if we, if we really wanted to have something in common, we needed to talk about Mary. Um, even after Scott became a Catholic, and I wasn't, and I tried to go to his Bible studies in my home. Um, afterwards, people tended to say, well, the Blessed Mother did this, and the Blessed Mother did this, and there wasn't much mention of Jesus. And I kept, I would go up to my bedroom and cry and say, why can't they give the Lord the credit so that we can share this in common? I didn't understand. I want to back up just a little bit. I was brought into the world to a couple that love the Lord. Uh, they met on a seminary campus, a Protestant seminary campus, where my dad was studying to be a minister and my mother was a religious education director at a church. And when they got married, they wanted nothing more than to do ministry for the Lord and bring children into the, Lord, into the world that they would raise for the Lord. So I know from as soon as they knew I was on the way, they were praying for me. And I know they've prayed for me today. Um, they taught me the Word of God right along with my peas and potatoes. They bathed me uh, as a baby, and they made sure I was baptized. And they lived the faith that they loved. So that I never questioned whether or not God existed. I didn't question the qualities of God the Father because of their example to me and their teaching of me. There still came a time, though, and it's very essential that we communicate this clearly to our Catholic youth, there still came a time where I needed to, to go beyond my parents' faith to embracing Jesus myself, to looking at the cross and recognizing the fact that my own particular sins nailed Jesus there. And I needed to say, Jesus, I love you. I believe you exist. Nothing wrong with my parents believing in my parents' faith, but I needed to go ahead and personalize that, and I did in seventh grade. And there was a change. I was basically a good kid before then. You know, little things wrong, but I, I didn't do major things wrong. But there was still a significant change when I embraced Jesus Christ. Even the next day in school, kids could tell there was a difference. And that's what happened. And I began sharing. Put my Bible on top of my books. I began, uh, and there were times I was obnoxious about it. Um, God really blesses fanatics sometimes. <laughs> sometimes we can become so... Uh, prim and proper in our religion that other people barely know that we have it, you know, and uh, that wasn't my problem in junior high school. Um, and later when I graduated from high school, I heard a lot of testimonies of friends who said, remember when you were talking in gym class? That really touched my heart, or when you brought me to church to hear someone speak. And so junior high and high school were very exciting times for me to grow in faith, to grow in ministry, and I went off to college very excited to see what God had in store for me. Well, one of the things he had in store for me was bumping into someone named Scott Hahn. Um, I was busy with orientation board, and he was a resident assistant there a little early to meet the freshmen. We met at a dance, and his first question to me was, do you believe God exists? I mean, nothing like beating around the bush. And I thought, oh, Lord, he's lost his faith over the summer. You've got to give me the words to say to restore him, you know? And so I'm, we're at this dance, and I'm fumbling with my words, trying to explain the existence of God. And after about 10 minutes, I said, you know, do you think God exists? They said, oh, yeah. I said, why did you put me through all this? He said, I wanted to see what you were made of. Do you want to take a walk? So we took a walk, and he began to tell me about a ministry called Young Life that was very, very challenging. And he said, I'm looking for girl leaders to recruit. I think you'd be good. So we began doing ministry together. 
We dated some, but um, as he said, we were spending too much time together, and if we spent any more, we'd fall in love, and he didn't have time. <laughs> so we, we kept doing ministry, but quit dating for a year. But the next fall, he was dating someone else and said, I have to quit dating you because I'm going to date Kim Kirk to marry her, <laughs> which he did. Um, he's, he's a man of decision, isn't he? Um, I would say in my whole growing up, probably the only time of the year Mary was ever mentioned was Christmas. And from my perspective, she was really a great lady. She was someone who responded to the grace God had given her, but really nothing more than that. When we were in college, Scott asked me to give a presentation at Christmas time to the kids. More from the perspective of, of a teenager um, almost in a crisis pregnancy, introducing it that way. You know, a young girl discovers she's pregnant, um, doesn't know how to tell her boyfriend, doesn't know what the neighbors are going to think, that kind of thing. And then letting the kids know that I was really talking about Mary because it seemed like they were so used to the Christmas story they weren't hearing it anymore. And as I looked at Mary from that perspective, my respect for her grew, and I had a better appreciation of how many sacrifices she had to have made to say yes to the angel, yes to the Lord. I would still say I still had a very Protestant understanding of her, though. I have a lot to learn. Um, following our senior year, we got married, and we headed off to seminary at Gordon-Conwell up in New England. And after Scott had studied for one year with me working in Cambridge, um, we decided we were on such different tracks, we needed more unity. So I had the privilege of quitting work and going to school full time. During the course of those two years of study together, we had a chance to really work over a number of different theological issues. And even though we initially thought we would just get stronger in what we believed, we began to have some real questions. Um, in the whole area of justification by faith alone. As we wrestled with the text of Scripture, we came to the place where we felt like that isn't what Scripture was teaching. Rather, we're justified by grace, we're justified by faith, uh, but faith working in love, not faith in isolation. And that may not seem like an important discovery for you, but the two major tenets of the Protestant Reformation were Scripture alone is our authority, and we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And so that, especially foundationally for Scott, but for both of us, kind of shook us up a little bit. And we weren't sure what that long term would end up meaning to us. I remember being in a lecture where a Baptist professor said um, that one of the names for Mary um, was Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer. I remember sitting there going, oh, this makes me really uncomfortable. You know, what do you mean mother of God? Like, Mary created God, you know, or Mary is married to God. It just really struck me as wrong. And I went up to him afterwards, and I knew he wasn't a Catholic. And I was like, you know, I don't understand. And he said, we have to appreciate what Mary did, because Jesus did not have humanity apart from Mary. And if she had not given him his humanity, he could not be our Savior. And so we look at her uh, well, not only that, but because there's only one person, uh, the second person of the Trinity became man, it was God himself, the second person, that she held within her. And so she bore God. No, she never created God, but she bore God. And so we call her the mother of God because she is the only mother of Jesus who is fully God and fully man. And so a Baptist professor, again, enlarged my understanding and appreciation of Mary. Another critical 
point for me was um, taking a class on Christian ethics. I had done a lot of speaking on pro-life, and it seemed like whenever I spoke about abortion, I would get these troubling questions about contraception. And uh, I would say, oh, you know, you're getting us off the subject. I really want to keep to the subject of children who are already conceived. And, uh, and that's a whole, whole different area. And then some people very graciously let me know that some forms of contraception can be abortive, which I had not understood. The IUD always, some forms of the pill. And so I began to see this as a little muddier than I had ever understood before. I did not know at this point the Catholic Church had a particular position on it. I didn't know any friend who had ever questioned whether or not contraception was right or wrong. So I didn't even know it was an issue. You know, it's like, do you put out your garbage on the curb or on the sidewalk? I mean, it was, it was just a non-issue. And in fact, when we got married, my father's the one who married us, all he said was, what kind are you going to use? Uh, we said the pill. And he said, well, um, as your dad, I'm a little concerned, but as your pastor, I have no problem with that. So that was a revelation to me that there was even a question about it. I went into the Christian ethics class. And uh, the professor wanted us to pick a subject that we could study, whether it's capital punishment or nuclear war or whatever. And so I thought, well, this, this, you know, I get course credit and study it on the side. So I, I wanted to study contraception. Seven of us met in the back of the room. And uh, I think one man uh, just sort of appointed himself chairman and said, well, uh, some forms of contraception are abortive. And so they're wrong. And we certainly want to plan our families. And so some forms of contraception are right. Um, therefore, we'll go with non-abortive methods. I mean, no study at all. And I said, um, does everyone agree with that? I mean, we haven't even done any reading or research. And he said, you know, there's only one group of people that thinks contraception's wrong, and that's Catholics. So really, why do Catholics think contraception's wrong? And he said, there are only two reasons. He said, number one, the Pope isn't married. <laughs> so he doesn't live with the consequences. And number two, they are out to make all the Catholics they can in the world. <laughs> Yes, it is laughable. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't think Catholics would say those were the reasons they oppose contraception. And he said, well, why don't you read them and find out for yourself? And I said, oh, well. So I began checking out books, began to read up, and I was really startled with what I found. Now, I'm, I'm just going to give you four or five quick comments now, but I have a whole tape series that I did with my husband on it, and I'd really in encourage you if you have questions or if you want much more scripture along these lines, to look into it. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing a book on it now because it's so much on my heart. And I believe God planted seeds deep within me during this study that ended up opening my heart to the Catholic Church because of the um, prophetic voice of the church in an area that the rest of the world is shouting confusion. Here's some, here's some key thoughts. First of all, God's nature is triune. And you know, the only way we differentiate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they're all exactly the same God. I mean, no one, one isn't holier than the other, one isn't more omniscient than the other, or more omnipresent. They all have all the qualities of God, but we differentiate them in their relationships. So the Father eternally fathers the Son. And the Son pours himself back into the Father, and the bond between them is so real that it constitutes the third person of the Holy Spirit. God said, let us make man in our image. And so the triune God calls man and woman into existence, consecrating them into the vocation of marriage immediately and blessing them to be fruitful. So as my husband says, the two become one is so real that nine months later you might have to give it a name. 
<laughs> we have been called to image God as life-giving lovers. And the question I had to ask myself was, did my use of contraception, a rejection of openness to life at that point, reflect God and his nature? Who I was to image. I wasn't real comfortable with that, so I went on to another subject. That was children. How did I view children? I began to read scripture, and you need to understand we were not Catholic at this point. So even though there was lots of good material I could have read in terms of encyclicals, I turned to the Bible. And when I read through the scriptures, I couldn't find a verse that said, blessed is the man who has only two because he'll afford their college education. <laughs> or blessed is the woman with five years spacing because she'll never be stuck double diapering. Or all of the, or, you know, blessed is the couple who doesn't have a child for five years because they'll get to know each other. I couldn't find a single negative comment about a child in the Bible. But the reverse, that as I read Psalm 127 and 128, they're a reward, they're arrows in the hand of a warrior, they're olive shoots around the table, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full, blessed is the man whose table is surrounded by them. And what I had to ask myself was, did my view of children as a wonderful gift, but one I needed to figure out whether or not I could afford and only conveniently fit into my education or my career, reflect the pure gift that God says they are. And I was very struck at the time by a phrase in Gaudium et Spes that talks about them being the supreme gift of marriage. The third area was the Lordship of Jesus Christ, something Scott and I took very seriously. Every Sunday we laid down our work. We wanted to honor Christ in our talents, and so we were involved in youth groups. We wanted to honor God in our money, and so we tithed, even when we didn't have very much. 10% of not very much isn't very much, but it was still a gift from our heart. And yet when it came to our fertility, we did this American thing. Oh, God, we have our limits here. This is my territory, thank you. I'll tell you when you can bless me and when you can't. And I really had to come face to face with God and say, was I really giving him everything, or was I withholding something? And that really led to the fifth area, which was the sovereignty of God. Was it possible, given what I understood about God, for God to mess up how many children I had and the spacing and the sex of each child? Was it really possible that God couldn't have as good a plan as me? Or could I, in fact, trust God to plan my family? Now, I must say, even though my heart was really convicted, I did not impress the other people on my committee. But thankfully, I did impress my husband. He happened to run into one of my classmates, and the classmate said, have you been talking to Kimberly about what she's been studying? And he said, no, she's kind of doing her own thing. And he said, well, given the topic, you might want to sit down and discuss it. <laughs> and so we sat down and discussed it, and he was amazed. And he said, give me the things you're reading. And he read them, and then, and, uh, and so he said, okay. And so we threw away the contraception, and we made a, a radical change in our life. Um, and we switched to natural family planning for a time, and then since then I've just really said, God, whatever you plan is best. And that was a real beautiful teaching that we sat back and said, wow, the Catholic Church got it right. Now Scott's feeling, and he said, I remember where we were when he said it, I said, doesn't that impress you? And he said, even a blind hog finds an acorn, Kimberly. <laughs> so I don't want you to think that it was the turning point of our conversion, but God knows it probably played a much bigger part than we realized. These were a couple of the major issues that we worked through during seminary days, still basically from a Protestant perspective. It just seemed like life was unfolding before us in the most incredible way. And then a seminary contacted Scott to say, could you do a little teaching on the side for us? We'd like you to, to maybe teach a graduate class. 
That went so well, they asked him to teach two more the next semester. That went so well that they hired him to teach four for the summer. It was absolutely wonderful. Now, the only strange thing was that in Scott's preaching, he kept bringing up little disturbing things. He's, he kept talking about typology, you know, pictures that we have in the Old Testament coming to greater fruition in the New, and, and that, that's all well and good, except that we got into some sticky things with um, John 3 and the idea that water does something really powerful, like maybe baptism could regenerate, you know, and I'm like, Scott, you've got to really be careful how you say that, you know. He was doing a teaching on Hebrews and sharing a lot about priesthood, and his heart was so moved about communion, he said, let's go to weekly communion. And I said, wow, that, you know, that's pretty frequent. And he said, well, Calvin said it ought to be at least weekly. I said, how can it be any more often than at least weekly? He said, well, Catholics have it every day. I was 26 years old, and I had never heard of daily communion. Had never heard that from a single Catholic friend. I said, daily? You've got to be kidding. So, and we went to weekly communion. And then he, kept, he referred to it several times as the Eucharist. That was, that was frightening. I mean, this is language. I remember in seminary one time, a friend was really excited about studying communion, and he stopped us in the hallway, and he said, I am so excited, Scott. I've got to share it with you, what I'm learning about the sacraments. And Scott's exact words were, don't bother, sacraments bore me. But it was getting awfully sacramental, what he was teaching. And as he was going through John, he got near John 6, and he had been studying it. He quit the series because he said, Kimberly, I just don't know how to explain away Jesus' words in John 6, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stop preaching it, and I'll switch to another book. They'll never know. (laughs) In one of his seminary classes, a former Catholic who was picking up on a lot of what Scott was teaching did a presentation on Vatican I, and he said, you know, I've just got to ask you, Mr. Hahn, where does the Bible teach that Scripture alone is our authority? I mean, I, I just, I can't find it. And my husband, who is just the most marvelous professor in the world and had sworn to himself he would never look at a student and say, that's a dumb question. Turned to him and said, that is, a, that is really a dumb question. <laughs> so I can't believe you're even asking. I mean, the whole Bible presupposes that you've got all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And he said, yes, yes, all scripture is, but it doesn't say only scripture is. Scott began to do a mad scramble in his brain, you know, what do I come with, up with next? He'd never even thought of this question before. And then he said, you know, uh, Paul refers to tradition in 2 Thessalonians 3.15, where he says, uh, be careful to obey or observe the traditions that I have taught you, whether written or by mouth. So it seems like, you know, there's some kind of tradition being referred to. Anyway, Scott came home from that class shaking. And he said to me, I've got to find an answer to this. He began to call up professors. One of his professors said, Scott, that's a dumb question. (laughs) And he gave the same retort that his student had, which is, give me a dumb answer. Go ahead. I don't care how stupid the answer is. Show me how obvious it is. I cannot tell you the crisis of faith that gave for both of us. And as Scott said, if you say the Bible alone is your authority, and it itself does not claim that, but even presupposes tradition, presupposes a teaching authority, then you have to question your first premise. And in the midst of all of these kinds of questions, he was offered the deanship of this seminary. And he came home from the luncheon where he was offered to me, and I said, what happened? And he said, I was offered the deanship, and I said, and? And he said, I turned it down. Because I cannot tell Christ that I taught what I was taught in seminary, even though there was conflict inside of me. He said, I don't know what the truth is, 
but I have to go back and restudy so that I can stand before the Lord in honor. We moved back to Grove City College where he could be in the administration and he would study for hours every night, four, five, six hours. I had one little boy, I was pregnant with a second one. He'd come out and he would say, uh, let me read something to you. And he'd read something to me and he'd say, who do you think wrote it? And I said, well, it really sounds like one of your sermons from last year. And he'd say, Vatican II. <laughs> and I'd say, go back in your study and just work, you know. Or he'd come out and say, can I read you, you know, something? And I'd say, is it about Mary? And he'd say, well, yeah. I'd say, go away. No, I don't want to hear it. It was pride. I had a Master of Arts in Theology. And he came out one day and said, you know, there may not just be two sacraments, there might be seven. <laughs> and the two you understand, you probably don't understand. <laughs> I said, don't tell me these things. One day he came through and he said, I just have to tell you, Kimberly, we may be headed toward the Episcopalian Church. Now, that may not mean like any, anything much to you. I mean, all Protestants are sort of, you know, it's like generic brand. <laughs> But when he walked out of the room, I mean, I have an uncle who's a Presbyterian pastor. My father's a Presbyterian pastor. My husband was a Presbyterian pastor at that moment. I had wanted to be a Presbyterian minister most of my life. I had a brother studying to be a Presbyterian minister. I didn't want to be an Episcopalian. And I just cried and cried. Months went by. He gave me one book to read, and it's the only book I've ever thrown in my life. I read about three chapters, and I said, the Catholic faith cannot be this simple, and I just heaved it across the room. And I said, I'm not going to read anymore. It is confusing me. Of course, it was making too much sense. It's the problem. One night, Scott was so full of his study, I was up in bed, and he came bursting in the room, and he said, do you know that Mary and the angels and the saints are all around us? <laughs> I said, not in my bedroom. <laughs> we came up to Christmas time, and the ladies at my little Presbyterian church asked me to do the talk. And Scott said, why don't you do it on Mary? I said, oh, yeah, right. Like, you're going to make me go give a Catholic talk? And he said, no. All you can do is talk on what you think about Mary. But you know that they don't tend to think anything at all about her. And so present what you believe about how holy she was and how much she sacrificed to give us our Savior. So I prepared my little talk, and I didn't know, but the two ministers' wives had gotten together, and they actually changed the words to a Christmas carol, and they sang it right after my talk. And it was, um, what child is this? And they were so fearful of giving Mary any credit at all that they changed the last line from the babe, the son of Mary to the babe, the son of God because it was so threatening to even acknowledge that our Blessed Mother gave birth to him. Isn't that incredible? And God used even that experience as a mirror of sorts, saying, this is where you used to be and you know this isn't right. Maybe there's more you need to understand. Scott definitely was becoming more and more and more Catholic. Uh, he went to a graduate program, and he was the only Protestant in the classroom. There were priests there, there were all the rest were Catholics, priests teaching the class, and at times he was the only one defending the teaching of the church. In fact, he wrote a paper on the church's view of sexuality, and the professor said, thank you so much for clarifying the Catholic church's position. I will never teach this course again. <laughs> He didn't, he didn't say he would change his heart or mind. So Scott would come home and tell me that. Then he went to one priest, and, and he, he tried to address him as father, and he said, oh, I'm not into that. Just call me Jim. So he said, okay, Jim, I'm really interested in becoming Roman Catholic. And he said, look, since Vatican II, we just don't get into that anymore. He said, it's not ecumenical. The best thing you can do for the Catholic Church is be the best Presbyterian you can be. Went to another, another priest, 
And, uh, and the priest basically said the same thing. Since Vatican II, we just don't do that. And so he would come home and share that. At the same time, he's sharing all these wonderful things. And I said, I don't know if the Catholic Church you're reading about exists. And I have to admit, in my heart of hearts, I hoped it didn't, because I didn't want to face that much change myself. I kept hoping that he would do this big study, swing out study, and he'd come back to his senses, and then we'd get back on our track of being a minister and wife and in ministry alongside each other. One day he came through and he said, Kimberly, I just have to tell you, I believe I'm headed to the Catholic Church. And I said, can't we be Episcopalian? <laughs> I really did. So Scott needed to figure out whether the church he was reading about existed or if it was just in books. And that's when we applied to Marquette University and, and he was accepted in their doctoral program. When we left, he promised me that he would not convert for at least four years because he wanted it to look respectable. And if we just went to a Catholic university and he poked, people might not understand all the thought that had gone into it. But I remember walking through the living room just feeling like someone had unplugged the bottoms of my feet and all of the joy of my salvation had drained out. And I said, God, I don't feel like I even know who you are anymore. Are you a Catholic? <laughs> I don't get it. I would say Milwaukee was the winter of our life together. He was very involved at the university. I now had two little boys, three and one. I got involved in a Protestant church that was dynamic and growing, and he made a lot of Catholic friends. And by God's mercy, he gave us political issues to work together on, to fight pornography and to fight abortion. And in that sense, we were united. But aside from that, we began to grow farther and farther apart. I didn't want to see religious paraphernalia, so I didn't go up to his office where he kept everything. So I didn't have any crucifixes anywhere. I didn't know he owned a rosary until he told me he was praying it. And 10 days before Easter, which was just that first year at Marquette, 10 days before Easter, our good friends called. And I could just hear it in the voice. I knew it. I knew it. But I, I just got off the phone. Scott talked upstairs for hours. And he came down. And he said, well, that was, that was Jerry. Yeah? And he said, he told me that he and his wife are going to be received next weekend into the Catholic Church. Jerry was going to be my knight in shining armor. He was the only one that I knew who would take on Scott. And Scott gradually began to share resources with him. And here he was coming into the church. And I said, so? And he said, Kimberly, I have believed these things for a while. I've, gone, I've started going to daily mass. I want to receive the Eucharist. And I feel like I'm in a place where if I don't receive the Eucharist, I'm going to be disobeying the Lord. And I said, you promised me four years. And he said, I need you to pray to release me from that promise. So I went in the bedroom and I prayed. And I do think the Lord gave me the grace to release him because I knew he was a man of integrity. I knew he was telling me the truth. But when I came back in, I said, I want you to know you have my permission to do whatever you want to do. But I feel absolutely, completely abandoned by you. And so he picked up his rosary beads and went to take a walk. And I sat down and wrote in my prayer journal, God, who do I go to talk to about this? Because I knew we were at a tremendous crisis point in our marriage. I didn't have a friend in the world who could understand because the only friend who was converting, his wife was converting too. <laughs> and they couldn't understand why I wasn't just getting going, doing the same thing. And so I wrote in my prayer journal, who do I go to? And don't tell me Mary and the saints. I really did write that. Well, we went to the Easter Vigil, which was the very first Mass I'd ever attended in my life. And I cannot tell you the agony that it was that we would never take communion again unless I became Roman Catholic. And the joy of the people was excruciating. They were so thrilled. I mean, afterwards they were saying, let's take a picture. And I'm thinking, why would I want to remember this day? 
we went to a party afterwards, and person after person is congratulating me on what he did. And I'm just thinking, you don't know what I'm going through. There were at least two times in the ensuing months where I walked and walked and walked the block because it was so painful. I thought, I'm going to leave him. I cannot continue to function when we can't talk about God without it becoming a painful experience. You've got to understand, our relationship was forged on ministry together, on sharing about God together. We spoke for hours and hours and hours. We didn't go to movies and plays and all that kind of stuff. We did ministry. And now, how, how does a Catholic and a non-Catholic do ministry together? I had no sense of what my place could possibly be in his new life as a Catholic. A week after he came into the church, he wanted to do a Bible study. And I thought, well, that's good. Yeah, let's get the Bible to the Catholics. Okay, I, I'm up for this. And uh, still not thinking he could really believe everything that the church taught. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll be the hostess, and let's see if we can do this. They come for the first Bible study. First words out of the young man's mouth when he's asked to pray is, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is <laughs> and I just went in my bedroom and fell on my floor and cried. And like, God, how can he not know? what this is doing to me. And within three weeks, I said to Scott, I can't handle it. You've got to take the Bible study out of the house. Our sons were not even going to Mass. They were three and two at that time. And I went in one night and my three-year-old says, I want to be a priest. <laughs> and I kind of look at him. And the two-year-old goes, me too. <laughs> I couldn't breathe. I looked at him and I went, and I walked out and walked into my room and knelt on the floor and cried, God, I'm not even going to have grandchildren. <laughs> this is costing me everything, you know. And when I got to crying out of my system, I came back and I went, that's nice. <laughs> Our whole life was changing. I said to Scott one day, how could God do this to us? I do not understand this. We are two people so in love with each other and so in love with him, and we team up together to be a husband and wife ministry team, and we're going great guns, and then you just off to the side. Why would God do this? And he said, could it be love? <laughs> Come again? And he said, could God love you so much and know that you wouldn't look into these things on your own? And so he's put me through the agony of converting alone so that you can have access to these great truths so that you can come into the fullness of the faith. And I was speechless. I really didn't even know how to respond to that. I had to allow as if it was possible that could be true. We would begin discussing, and it would always end up in arguments and tears and frustration. Him wrestling between bringing the truths to me and trying to be the Holy Spirit, ramming it down my throat. I would not have dated a Catholic. And now I was married to one. And not just an ordinary Catholic. <laughs> and I can tell you, Mary was really hard for me right now because he would pick up the rosary beads and I knew he was going to go out and take a little stroll with Mary. And Mary was going to be sweet and kind and loving and gracious. And whether she was perfect or not on earth, I didn't know, but I knew she was now, and so she wasn't going to give him a hard time. And then he was going to come back and there was me. <laughs> now, if any of you ladies have ever come to faith before your husband has, you have probably noticed how your husband has wrestled with jealousy over Jesus and your love that you're gushing out for this man, you know. I struggled with Mary and a real jealousy. It was hard to compete with the mother of God. <laughs> I felt like I was married to the man I hadn't married. 
And there was a struggle in me, too, in terms of having another baby. And we'd always just been open to life, but I, I, the thought cruised through my brain, I am not going to have another baby for the Pope. <laughs> and after about three weeks, the Lord really broke through my heart and said, Kimberly, you know you don't understand so much of Scripture right now. Right now you feel like you're just floundering. But one thing you know is you've got to be open to life. Don't sin against the light you have. And so, really for me, risking everything, because at this point I understood now that my children would be raised Catholic. And so in a sense, I was open to having another child who would be a Catholic child. We conceived Hannah, and throughout her pregnancy, there were just different times that God brought to mind. In fact, it was the second thing on my heart when I saw that positive pregnancy test. The first one was, oh, I'm pregnant. The second thought was, oh, how's this child going to be baptized? I am not kidding you. I wrestled with it. We didn't talk about it. And thank God, I never knew I had no choice, because I thought I did. <laughs> and so it was just God and me wrestling instead of God, and it's God and me wrestling. And about six weeks before she was born, I said, by the way, please contact your priest, because I, I know this child needs to be baptized Catholic, and I, I want you to set it up. And he was like, oh, okay, <laughs> if that's what you want. <laughs> and, and the Lord just really sweetly and peacefully brought my heart to that. At that time, Scott had a conversation with my dad, which I didn't know about, but then my dad called me. And my dad is a very, very holy man. And he called me and said, Kimberly, do you pray the prayer I pray every day? Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. Say whatever you want me to say and give away whatever you want me to give away. I said, no, Dad, I'm not praying that prayer these days. <laughs> and he was genuinely shocked. He said, you're not. Why not? I said, Dad, if I prayed that, I would be saying to God, I'm even willing to be a Roman Catholic. And I will never be a Roman Catholic. And he said, honey, I've got to tell you something. The question isn't whether or not you'll be a Catholic. It's who's, who's God of your life? Who's Lord of your life? And you don't have the right to tell Jesus Christ where you will and won't go. And he said, if you can't pray the prayer, pray for the grace to pray the prayer. And because it was him and not Scott, I could hear it. And it took me 30 days sweating it out and saying, God, give me the grace. And after 30 days, I felt like I was ready to pray the prayer. But when I prayed it, I really thought that what God would do is take a key and lock the cage I felt I was in and say, okay, now it's time. Follow Scott like a moron into the Catholic Church. <laughs> and you know, if you've ever taken God at his word, and I'd recommend that you do, you know what he did? He took the key that had been in my hand and he unlocked the cage. He threw up in the door and he said, now you're ready to ask the questions. Now you're ready to study. And I, and I really had a soaring feeling. Now it was time to engage my mind and engage my heart in the struggle to understand that the Catholic Church was in fact the Church of Jesus Christ had founded. Now I don't want to, to make light of those three years that still had to be lived through in terms of the agony because I still wrestled in my heart. I did not want to become a Catholic, and then I would want to. I'd be at Mass, and, then, and it would just make so much sense, and then all of a sudden I'd feel like, oh God, I'm being sucked into the void. It's only making sense because my mind's in neutral. Oh no, you know, and I, I remember one time just leaving Mass, just saying, I've got to get out of here, and I just bolted. We had three kids, and I left them with my husband, and I just walked the blocks, you know, until I finally could come to peace and, and come home. But there was a new sense of joy. I went to Hannah's baptism, and I really thought the priest was going to say, Kimberly, sit over here, and we're going to do your kid over here. I just didn't even know that the priest might treat me like I was a Christian. But it, 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 the Lord had moved my heart to the place where it didn't even matter if the priest didn't think I was a Christian because it was so important she'd be baptized. 
And of course, he wasn't anything like that. He included me in everything. And he said, anything you can't do, Mrs. Hahn, just don't do. It's okay. And so we began in the back and we processed and we made the sign of the cross on her forehead. And you know the liturgy. It's so rich. It is so beautiful. Now, when we got to the Litany of Saints, I really did. I just said, oh, God, forgive him for talking to all those dead people. <laughs> I just, I felt real bad my kids had to hear it, but I thought, well, they'll probably forget it. And then, and then he was explaining baptism as, you know, making this child a child of God. And I went, oh, well, God forgive him because he's getting the order messed up. And she needs to come to faith first, but it's, it's okay. It's okay. But at one point when he prayed over her ears to hear the gospel and respond and over her mouth that she would speak it, there is nothing I would have prayed more for my daughter. Nothing. And uh, I found out later that I was squeezing Scott's hand and he thought I was hanging on so I wouldn't bolt. Um, but I, my heart was so full and I'm not a Baptist uh, by training. I'm Presbyterian, which were very proper, you know, but uh, I couldn't hold it in. And when the priest said, amen and amen, I just said, amen. <laughs> And the godparents looked up like, oh, wow, is she a Protestant? No. <laughs> but I mean, it was everything. I, and when we left that sanctuary, I knew God had done something powerful in my heart. In fact, I have to admit, we went from there to the, my Protestant service. And uh, Scott said, do you want to change your clothes? And I said, oh, no, let's take her in her baptismal gown. And, uh, and it was a, a Baptist uh, type of church where they don't believe in infant baptism. And, I, and we went right up to the pastor at the end of the service. And he said, well, that's an interesting uh, outfit on your child. I said, yes, she was baptized in the Catholic church today. <laughs> I just grinned, you know. And, uh, I wanted to witness to it, so I know God was doing something really powerful in my heart. We moved to, to uh, Joliet, and Scott had shared many things, but if any of you have ever done head-to-head -head combat with your spouse, it is generally not the easiest way to learn something, <laughs> but an easier way is to have a friend there that you listen to your spouse interact with a friend, or where the two of you hear someone else present something. And so Dr. Mark Miravalli from Steubenville came to Joliet and gave a presentation on Mary that was very powerful. I'm not sure that Scott had not shared all those things another time with me, but God used that evening to really bring home four special things. I'll, I'll just try to keep it brief. The first one is that Mary is only a creature. She isn't God. Now, that may shock you that any Protestant would think that the Catholic Church thinks she's a goddess, but it is an impression Protestants get. It's just great to have that cleared, cleared up. The Catholic Church doesn't believe she's God or goddess. She is a creature, but with this very unique difference. She's the only one who had a son make her. The second thing is that Jesus did save her from sin. Aha, I knew it. I knew it. After all the Magnificat, I rejoice in God my Savior. He said because he saved her from the point of conception. And so she is absolutely, utterly dependent on the mercy of God, the grace of God. She didn't do it in her own strength. Jesus saved her from sin. And that made sense to me because I had once heard a testimony of a friend who had been like me, basically good, and he started it this way. I was once, um, no, how do you say it? Uh, God saved me from drugs and alcohol and wild sex. I mean, everybody was like, wow. And I'm sitting there going, you're a liar, you know? And then, he, and then his next line was, because he saved me before I got into any of that stuff. And I thought, that came to mind when he said it about Mary. I said, that's it. He saved her before, he got into, before she got into any of that stuff. Third thing. She's the queen of heaven, not because she's married to God the king, but because she's the queen mother. And whenever your son's the king, you are the queen mother. And so she's the queen mother of heaven, just like Bathsheba with Solomon and the other uh, queen mothers of the sons of David. And fourthly, her mission is to bring us to Jesus. And so true Marian devotion will always bring people to her son. 
It doesn't just stop stock still in front of her. It always brings us back to the Lord. One day, our friend who had converted called me, and I had a really tough day. I had had a really hard day. I had these three little children, and, you know, you get your sin going and theirs, and it can be really quite a, quite a day. And uh, anyway, he called in the midst of it, and he said, you know, Kimberly, have you ever thought of talking to Mary about it? I said, first of all, Jerry, I don't talk to dead people. Um, so I wouldn't think of talking to Mary. But I, I said, he said, you know, she's just a mother you can relate to. I said, now, let's, let's go over this. First of all, how many children did she have from your perspective? One. Okay, and I've got three. And uh, was he a sinner? No. And I have three. And how about her? Was she a sinner? Well, no. And I said, I can just picture it. The three of them sitting around, the holy family around the table. Someone blows it and everyone knows, had to be Joe. <laughs> couldn't be Mary, couldn't be Jesus. <laughs> I said, I can relate to Joseph. And I must say, I really think that was the starting point of my devotion to St. Joseph. Uh, I love him so much, and I, and I think it started at that moment. I did share this with a friend of mine who's very Marian, and she was very worried that I was denigrating Mary in some way, even by that analogy. And she came back to me after praying about it, and she said, I just want you to know one thing. Even though she only had one son and he was perfect, just look at all the wretches she's had to mother since then. <laughs> I guess she's had her share of wayward children beyond anything we'll have. But at that point, I really didn't believe in the communion of saints until the Lord gave me an opportunity to need their help very badly. I had conceived and didn't know it in December of 86, and in January of 87, January 22nd of 1980, I'm sorry, it's 7, it's not 87, it's 89. January 22nd, 1989, I'm in the hospital and I've been bleeding for three or four days and having very strong pain in my side. And the doctor says, you know, there is a chance that this is a tubal pregnancy. And we've, we've got to get you into surgery. And I won't go through all the details, but I was pregnant. It was a tubal pregnancy. And I woke up in the hospital room having found out that I had been given a full cesarean cut. Um, Scott was there, and we had these three little children at home, so he could only stay minimally. And when he left... I cannot tell you how lonely I felt. I felt the emptiness, and I don't care how pregnant you are, when you know you have a baby and then you find out the baby is dead, even if it's just days or weeks, you know, you feel really gutted. Then I had a full C-section surgery, they put me on a maternity ward, so I'm hearing little babies crying around, you know, and no one's coming to my door uh, with a child. My three little ones weren't allowed into the hospital, and Scott had to go home. And I just lay there in so much physical pain and then the sadness. And it was all coming to a head to me because I, I was still experiencing the, the turmoil of Catholicism and what's true. And the Lord brought Hebrews 12 to mind. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, that's called the great faith chapter. And Hebrews 12 starts this way. Therefore, so you know it's related to the last chapter. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As I lay there, God brought that scripture to mind and he really spoke to my heart powerfully and said, Kimberly, that's present tense. You are laying here feeling so alone, but you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And they're not standing around you kind of going, huh, what are you going to do with this test? In judgment of you. But they are with you in prayer. 
and i realized that if that was true, there were saints in that room who hadn't just had a c-section done with anesthesia but had experienced much more physical pain than i had, had not just lost a new pregnancy but maybe had had children who were older die, who didn't just have a husband go home to children but maybe lost their spouse, um, especially for Christ. And they were there. And, it, and the setting is very much like a stadium, like an Olympic stadium where everyone in the stands has already won a medal in the race you're in. They know what it takes, and they are with you. And I have never doubted the communion of saints from that moment. I know that Mary and the saints buoyed my spirit when it was so low, and they were with me to the glory of God. After that experience and with some others, I told Scott I wanted to be in the RCIA class. I wanted to do something sort of normal as a Catholic, and so I thought I would sign up for that course. And one of my questions to the priest was, what about all these statues and pictures? You know, I'm really uncomfortable. It seems like they're worshiping them. And he said, Kimberly, do you have pictures of your family up on the wall? Yeah. And he said, when you go by, do you worship them? Do you bow down before them? And, you know, or do they just remind you of the great love you have for them? He said, these are your older brothers and sisters in the Lord. You've just never met them. And they're to, they're to remind you of the love you have for them and the love together you have for Christ. Not only did I sign up for RCIA, but I also signed up for the CCD class that my little boy was going to take, mostly because I wanted to find out what the Catholics were going to teach him. I also wanted to be helpful, but I really wanted to know, and that's when I learned the Hail Mary. Now, I did not say it. I didn't say it. We'd review the, the three little prayers, but, but I, I definitely learned it. And during the course of the year, I became convinced that first confession really was a sacrament, so I was looking forward to that for my son and, and for his classmates, and there was one little girl in particular that I thought it would be very helpful if she went to first confession. <laughs> Well, we get to the night of first confession, and the kids are going back, and this little girl went back, and when she came back, to me, her eyes were just filled with tears. I said, oh, honey, what's wrong? She said, he said to say the Hail Mary. I said, okay. She said, I don't remember the words. I was like, oh, no. Because I still wasn't sure it didn't offend God to say it, and so I was like, okay. I mean, I knew she had to say this prayer, so I said, I'll, I'll help you, and we knelt down, and Word by word, Hail Mary, and she imitated me, and we got through the whole thing, and she looked at me and said, two times. <laughs> you may not remember your first Hail Mary, but I remember mine. Well, we got up to Ash Wednesday, and I was still telling the priest, no, no promises, you know, I've gone through the RCIA, but, you know, I had no sense it was going to be that Easter. Uh, but Scott had just received an appointment at Steubenville, and so um, I needed to go up and look for housing while he was in Long Beach at a conference. I dropped my children off at my sister's house, and it happened to be Ash Wednesday. So I was praying in the car and just saying, you know, God, what do you want me to give up for Lent this year? You know, I'm talking major sacrifices here, chocolate, dessert, soda. And uh, I really felt like he spoke to my heart, and he said, why don't you give up? And I said, what? <laughs> Please fill in a blank. And he said, why don't you give up you? You have had so much make sense. There may be some of you here today, you've had so much fall into place. You can now say, I believe, help my unbelief. You can say, I can let the church teach me. And I knew it was God calling me. And I just said, yes, yes. And the next four hours in the van, I was just singing praise songs. And just my heart was so full. 
And the next night, I was up in Steubenville, and I talked to Scott about a house I found, which is the one that we bought. And, and I was explaining different things. And then I said, by the way, I want to tell you about my car ride. And I explained it, and I said, and I said yes, and so this is my Easter. And there was just no answer on the other end. And uh, I said, Scott, are you still there? And he said, I don't even know what to say. He said, I have given up all hope that we'd ever be a Catholic family. And so we cried together, and we laughed together, and we began to make plans. Please don't think that I haven't had other struggles, though, because two weeks beforehand, he said, now, have you ever prayed a rosary? And I said, I'm converting. Don't push it. (laughs) I have so much to learn to be anything like Mary. But I did. I picked up rosary beads, and I probably wouldn't have, but uh, Bill Steltemeyer sent me the set he was given by the Holy Father. And Scott said, I don't know. She still might not pray it. And Bill said, well, the Holy Spirit told me to send them to her, so I will. And when I held these, I thought, Catholics would kill for this rosary. (laughs) I have to use it. I have to use it. It's like I prayed one decade. There's a little scriptural rosary book that Scott had given me. And so I prayed one decade, and no lightning came. and, and And I didn't say anything. And then the next night, I prayed one more decade. And then the third night, I prayed one more decade, and I just knew in my heart it was time to go talk to Scott. And I went up and I just said, I am so sorry for how hard I have fought you, how much I've kept God at a distance, because I didn't want to change. I thank God for his great work of mercy in my life. I am so thankful to be a Roman Catholic. My deepest heart's desire is to be able to share what God has done. And I, I'd like to close in prayer for all of us as we hopefully will take this and share this with other people. Not to promote the Catholic Church as a separate entity, but it is the body of Christ. To promote Christ. He receives glory when we honor those he has honored, like Mary. He is the one who has honored her. And when we honor her properly, we are giving honor and glory to God. And what a great privilege it is for us to be Catholics. God in his mercy has given us eyes to see the fullness of faith. And may he use us in the lives of others that they too may come to appreciate everything he has died to give us. God bless you. We truly hope you have enjoyed Kimberly Hahn. And for more information or a copy of the broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, that's Magnificat Proclaims at P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. You can also call us toll free at 800 500 4556. That's 800 500 4556 or 714 744 0336. In addition, if you'd like to know more about this beautiful Magnificat ministry, including a location of a chapter maybe in your area, please call us at 504 828 Mary. That's 504 828 6279. Well, on behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross, inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in His peace. Amen.